cool. Can we do an intro too? I uh, probably just make uh, uploading it easier. Sure, sure. What do you mean? Um, just to welcome everybody, I guess. Or... <laughs> All right. Yeah, yeah. Um, lead the way there, man. <laughs> All right. So, welcome everybody. Thanks for tuning in for this video. Um, and I actually don't even know the topic yet, but um, I guess. Just to introduce ourselves real quick. My name is Adam Cross. Um, I am a therapist in Southern California. And sure, I'm uh, Daniel Johnson. I am a associate marriage and family therapist. I have to legally emphasize the associate, <laughs> uh, which means that I am on my way towards licensure. So I'm also a marriage and family therapist here in Southern California. And the point of the show is that we're both Catholic therapists. So there you go. Yeah. And I know with my, my YouTube video from the last one, I was having some trouble with, with, I think it was YouTube, the editing. So hopefully this one, there will be less glitches in actually getting that edited. But, uh, but yeah. Uh, you, I mean, the reason I, I've stayed away from YouTube is because I need to buy a video editor to make it worth my time. But uh, you can always catch the show on my podcast as well, colorofthought.com or yeah. iTunes or iHeartRadio, uh, Stitcher, and I could be other places. I don't know, but I've lost track, quite frankly. <laughs> so, That's but, awesome. uh, yeah, catch the show either on YouTube or podcast, ladies and gentlemen. So, and you're, right. you're iTunes too, right? Uh, yes, iTunes. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's the first one you always want to get on, and I know I'm there. So if you feel deeply moved by all this, be sure to leave a review. I'm told that helps. So uh, go on to iTunes and uh, say hello. And if you have questions, of course, there's always the YouTube comment section here uh, or my website. You can shoot us a question at colorofthought.com. So there you go. So um, for today's topic... I'm going to uh, present to you uh, a half-baked idea, Adam, and and I principally want to get your reaction to this idea. Yeah. But I will do my best to to conclude in the form of a question, I suppose. Okay. So so here's the thought, and and I was hashing this out a little bit with a client this week or two weeks ago at this point. Um, so there is this tendency in the medical industry uh, of which we are nominally a part um, or quite literally a part of, but, you know, uh, we're certainly a special subset of the medical industry. And there's this movement to um, what people call um, to normalize psychotherapy or to destigmatize psychotherapy. And... Typically, the way that conversation goes is that people make a comparison between mental illness and physical illness. Mm. And the comparison will go something like this. If you had a broken leg but never went to the doctor's office, uh, you would never um, – you, you just simply wouldn't do that. If you had a broken leg, you would immediately go get help. So yeah. why don't – if you have a broken emotions or a broken mind – don't you immediately seek help? So, so that's the comparison. And it occurs to me just right now as I think about this that this gets really absurd on Facebook. I'll see these posts usually by well-meaning female therapists that I know. 
that you know we one day we want to make mental health as normal as as going to the doctor for a cold mm. now I know we're going through a tremendous flu season right now, and so more people are probably going to the doctor than normal. But okay. I've never gone to—I've never gone to a doctor for a cold. I don't think I've ever gone for a flu in my lifetime. I, really? I—I okay. I, I had food poisoning for three days before I bothered to go to a doctor's Ooh. office. So I don't know where these people are getting off at. But anyhow, um, so that's an observation. But my thought is that I think before we make this comparison or make this 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 try to destigmatize therapy using this line of thought mm -hmm. i think it's worth pausing and asking ourselves why that difference exists before we start to try to change it before we start to try to address it um be, because the 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 concern it, it comes from a good place you know more people should seek mental health services than than to do, you know, there, there certainly is, um, it, it is certainly a, uh, a, a recourse of last resort for a lot of people, you know, classically, especially your marriages, right? They'll show up to you just because, you know, the, the divorce lawyer next door happened to be at lunch. So, you know, that's the only reason a lot of times couples will show up. So certainly there is a concern there, but I wonder why is it that mental health does in, um, does elicit this this reaction, um, and so maybe maybe I'll I'll leave it at that because I have some thoughts as to why there's a difference. But let's maybe start there. Yeah. Why do you think mental health gets a different kind of reaction than physical health? Mm, okay, well, that's a good question. I think part of it is I don't know. I, I think part of it's probably that it's not as tangible, right? That it's harder to define and someone could be experiencing anxiety for maybe their whole life and never really be able to properly name it and recognize it. Um, I mean, hopefully that's not the case, but there are, there are situations where people are like just generally more anxious than others and they, they aren't really aware of it until something happens. And then there, you know, there causes them to reflect and like, oh, well, maybe I, I do have anxiety, um, different things like that. So sometimes people don't really know how to, you know, name what they're experiencing or, you know, recognize what's going on. Um, that could also be like a cultural thing as well. Um, but sometimes just simply putting names to things can help. Um, and on the same level, I'm not a huge fan of diagnoses as a therapist I typically don't even give my clients a, a clear diagnosis unless they're like really wanting to know what's going on um but you know sometimes that can help to say well you know you're kind of hitting these main like characteristics of someone who's generally anxious or generally depressed or things like that um so yeah maybe there's just kind of a, a distance from the language um or the definitions, or um, you can't really, you know, look at a broken arm or look at it the same as a broken arm and say, oh, yeah, this needs fixing, right? Because we can't really get in other people's heads and know how things can be different. I don't know. That's, that's my yeah, opinion. Yeah. So as a, as a first answer to the question, um, definitely 
is often the case that people will have a more or less diagnosable condition for so long uh, that it's hard for them to even see that it's an issue. Yeah. yeah. And I think anxiety is a good example because um, anxiety and depression both have a very long uh, temperamental history. That is, that is to say, um, people have, have almost as long as we've been writing history, we have been aware that there are some people who are simply <coughs> by temperament disposed to uh, anxiety, uh, disposed to fear, disposed to sadness. We could probably put it a little more generally like that and maybe get it outside of the, the, the diagnosable category. But certainly there's a temperamental disposition which people might not perceive as something worthy of, uh, uh, of mental, uh, of, of treatment, that is to say, of, of specific treatment, the way a broken arm is clearly in need of fixing. Um, and, and it's interesting, so I guess the, the analogy would be something like someone who was born crippled, who by their temperament, using that word very analogously at this point, but kind of their whole life, that's probably a better way to look at it, has this, um, this, this disability or this deformity which, which requires treatment or, or requires that the person with that disability should address their life or go about their life differently. So to somebody with a kind of temperamental disposition to, to depression or anxiety, they may not be aware that this is something which can be, um, which can can benefit from particular strategies or particular interventions or particular behavioral modifications or, or things like that. Um, simple things like diet come to mind, you know, especially in, in the case of, well, of, of both anxiety and depression, uh, benefit from that one simple behavioral change often to, to address one's diet affects temperamental disposition so that seems like a, a good observation for sure here's and and then your very first observation was good the fact that because it's immaterial mm -hmm. it's it's not the the defect is not so obvious at first and i think it's true for anybody with any mental illness or any any diagnosis is that they take a long time before they come into therapy yeah and it, yeah, it's, it's hard to, I think a lot of people might think like, oh, I'm sure other people are experiencing this, right? Um, until it gets to a point where it's, it's unbearable and it's still, you know, moves them to, to do something. And then at that point, it's like, oh, maybe, you know, maybe other people are, <laughs> are experiencing this as well or, you know, but the, the other two things that come to mind as we're talking about this is reasons why people don't come in right away um, is probably that, number one, in some way they've been taught that this stuff isn't important to look at or consider, or even deeper that they're not important enough to look at or consider. And that, that might sound kind of harsh, but I, I have a lot of clients who just, you know, they have learned one way or another growing up that their thoughts and feelings aren't really valuable in some way or, or just there was never any space made for them or, you know, there was never any permission for that to happen. So they 
have kind of implicitly learned like, well, we don't really look at this stuff about me. Um, so for them to take an action to talk to someone about how they're thinking and feeling is pretty foreign to them. Um, and then there's another one, and I just blanked on it. <laughs> well, no, that, that's a good observation. There is certainly um, a cultural reaction to emotions and thoughts, <clears throat> which which isn't usually present for physical uh, uh, True. disabilities. Yeah. And it's an interesting thing because this is where I got into it. Got into it, it's too strong, but where I took the thought when I was talking to my client. You know, mental stuff touches very closely to what it means to be a human being, more so, I think, even than physical um, deformity. It touches very closely to um, our ability to perform an act of the will, and it touches very closely to our ability to uh, uh, rationally perceive the world or to, to perceive the reality around us. And of course you have kind of the more exotic um, diagnoses as I probably um, should not call them, but you know, schizophrenia or things like that where there's true hallucination going on and, and true um, uh, false data, so to speak, being presented to the, the intellect and, and as a consequence to the will. Um, and so it's an interesting thing because these touch where these affect what is most of all human, um, there, there seems to be this um, fear that's generated that if we admit that we have this or if we admit that um, I'm having this difficulty, in some way I'm, I'm admitting that I'm no longer in control in the case of the will or I'm no longer, uh, or, or somehow my, my very what it is to be me is being compromised mm -hmm. it, it, in a way that a lost eye or a lost arm doesn't necessarily touch on someone's identity. Mm -hmm. and, and so I wonder if part of the cultural reaction is this acknowledgement that this is way more serious actually than physical deformation or physical illness. Uh, th this touches much more <laughs> closely to what it is to be to be human mm -hmm. um, and I, I wonder if there isn't a kind of elevation of uh, mental disorders so to speak I, I, we do treat them more seriously and so the minute we admit we have it we're, we're admitting something that that's much more important in a way I don't know what you think about that but. well I think even I think yeah, there is something there, and what you're saying is even the, like, if we were to lose an arm, right, or a leg, um, or have some sort of physical disability or change, that um, that I, that is linked to our mental health. Even that that you know, someone could could you know something could happen to someone, and they could go into a depressive state or really start questioning the, that their identity, which. So the physical then affects the mental. Um, so yeah, I think there is something, yeah, there's something there. And, and the other thing I, I did remember, um, and it's kind of connected, is that usually with these things, there's that sort of judgment that is, or a fear of a judgment being made that is present. 
um, when it comes to coming in, or even like you said, just a fear of not being in control, there's a judgment that's made about, you know, self usually that's like, well, you know, I must be crazy or I must be, you know, losing control or I must be losing my mind. Or it could be, you know, if I come into therapy, my family will think I'm crazy or my family or my friends will think I messed up or something like that. So there's, there's usually that judgment, which typically is fear-based, like you were saying, of losing control or losing a sense of self that I think is a big deterrent for a lot of people, right? It's like, well, I'm not a rock bottom yet. Like I'm not crazy yet. So I don't need therapy. And that's why they don't come in. And, you know, they persist in whatever they're, they're struggling through because of that judgment and fear that might exist. Well, and it's an interesting observation you make because there is certainly a spectrum of, uh, uh, of diagnosis. So, so for example, with depression, you know, you could have a few of the symptoms and you can even have, you know, just one of the symptoms, but to a severe degree or, or something like that. Um, yeah. yeah, there, there is certainly a spectrum of mental disorder that, you know, some of it can be managed on one's own. Some of it can be managed with friends. Um, some of it can be managed with somebody who has specified training in a particular um, illness or a particular um, uh, diagnosis. And, you know, sometimes we need that, sometimes we don't. And and I think as master level clinicians, you and I probably are closer to that gray area more often than, say, a PhD or a PsyD. You know, people are coming in who... Um, I remember distinctly on at least two occasions, I had people come in and they explained what was going on in their life. And my thought was, you don't need me. You just need a good friend. You know, <laughs> you just need someone to check in with every now and then, you know, um, if you want to pay for that, I guess. But, uh, you know, you're you're buying a Cadillac when all you needed was a Toyota. So. Um, so anyhow, uh, no, it's an interesting observation. So. So I guess, you know, having in a rough way begun to look at why this difference exists, because I think it's worth affirming that, you know, there's a reason we react the way we react to things. And I, I wonder now, should we as clinicians or as a society, should we go about the project of destigmatizing therapy should we be doing that by making comparisons to physical disorders which which I don't think are fully yeah. fully illustrative of what mental health is all about mm -hmm. or is there a better should we even be engaged in that project at all or and if we should what uh, there must be a better way to do it I think yeah no I, I agree. Um, and that's an interesting question. I haven't thought too much about it before, but I think it's, you know, to have a Catholic answer, it's, it's probably both. And it's yes to destigmatize it and re-emphasize the purpose of therapy uh, is what I would say, because, you know, yeah, it would be really good if people were comfortable to come into therapy when they needed it. Um, but like you said, 
the the goal of therapy really is that that our clients know themselves, they know what's going on in their lives, and they have the tools to really handle and process what's what what comes up. So at some points, you know, I, I'd say a good therapist would hope that their clients don't come back <laughs> because they're well equipped and they, you know, they they have a plan and they they know themselves well enough where they can they can make healthy choices. So, you know, to destigmatize it, open that door, yes. But um, as a as a frequent check-in, maybe. But I guess to have it an ongoing thing forever, I don't know. I don't know. That would probably be very specific to the person and what they're going through. At least, you know, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, the nature of this kind of conversation is that we're speaking in very general terms. Yeah. Um, but... It is a worthy. I, I, I'm glad you bring up the observation that uh, there should be what that that uh, threshold or that that resistance of the very first appointment that probably needs to be uh, uh, decreased or lessened so that people are willing to walk in the door. But at the same time, we don't want that resistance to be so. Uh, non-existent that people stay forever yeah so we do want some notion of you're here to not be here yeah uh, you know uh, that's often actually one of my first questions uh, in the intake is what has to happen in your life so you don't have to see me again um, <laughs> so <laughs> I think that usually is a pretty good start <laughs> therapy I think um, so yeah, there, I, that's an interesting balance that has to be struck because there, there's. It certainly is the case that some people will come in too easily and stay too long. Yeah. So I wonder, and and so about kind of the the general project of decreasing the stigma, and I and I think this is actually really important that two men are talking about this because if there was anything that was true in the APA guidelines for men and boys, it was that we don't come to therapy. Um, we are very resistant <laughs> to therapy. Uh, and, and maybe we should apply the same logic to that question and first ask why. Uh, but that being said, uh, at least that much of the document was true. So I wonder, how do we talk about, and well, how do we begin to explain therapy to people such that they're willing to walk in the door at all. Yeah. And that, that being said, most of my clients are, are men, which is, ironic. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, yeah, that's a good question. And, um, you know, I, I, I usually frame therapy with, with my clients in the first, uh, consultation that, you know, it is a place to build a relationship with yourself. Um, and that really looks like understanding why we're doing what we're doing, right? Um, having a little bit of that sense of control and just knowing, okay, I, I deal with my anxiety in this way, or I deal with these negative thoughts in that way. Just that basic understanding and that therapy is a place to unpack what's going on and to see what's underneath the surface, look through it, make sense of, of what, you know, of why we're doing what we're doing and why we're choosing what we're choosing and things like that. 
Mm-hmm. And then from that, making healthier choices um, and, and hopefully holier choices in that process. And, um, you know, I, I think I could credit a lot of that to our supervisor, Esther Poole, <laughs> who that's really her philosophy. And, um, and I, I really have seen that, that it's, it goes beyond kind of a behave, behavioral change to that deeper personal change. Um, and I think it really reflects our faith as well, is that the more we look at ourselves and look at what's going on with us, the more we kind of see God's plan for us and the more we see God working and and just even God himself at the risk of sounding egotistical. But we see, you know, that we are made in the image and likeness of God and that, you know, our thoughts and feelings have value and um, that there's there is a lot of important things to consider in our own interior life. No, you're absolutely right. Um, Self-knowledge, I think, is the universal goal of therapy, regardless of what diagnosis you're in there for, regardless of what medicine you're taking or what modality you're using, what therapeutic lens you're using. The goal is always to understand oneself better. And... And I, I, and I love the, the, the cognitive behavioral model because it, it very neatly divides the self into, you know, the thoughts, the emotions, and the behaviors, which is a very useful division. I, I hesitate to say it's a complete division, but it's at least a useful one. So, yeah. and, and you're right, the strict behavioral change, while occasionally that's all a person needs, Almost always, one can come to understand their thoughts and their emotions better through addressing the behaviors and and to see what's motivating, what emotionally is motivating, or what cognitively is motivating that behavior. So you know, it's it's it self knowledge does involve all three, and I think and and well, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. I I think you see many more men than I do. I have about maybe 50% of my practice as men, but I doubt it's that high. Um, but I wonder if oftentimes for them, motivation to come in is a behavioral one. There's some, some activity in their life that they can't overcome. It seems to me pretty rare that they come in for you know, I'm, I'm having a lot of anxiety or I'm, I'm fear, you know, usually they come in, if it's anxiety, they usually come in because I have a panic attack. You know, there's some external thing that's freaking them out. Yeah. So, no. True. No, that, that's very true. And, and I say that, you know, cause I, I like CBT a lot as well. And I think it does lead to those deeper, you know, core beliefs about ourselves that really reflect what that relationship looks like and, and how we treat ourselves and, um, you know, that lens of really which we're living out of and making decisions. But, um, yeah, I think the behavioral piece can be the start for the majority of clients, right? It's, well, you know, uh, I'm, I'm having trouble making friends because I'm so anxious or, or even a couple, it's like, well, you know, we're just fighting constantly and I'm just tired of it. So <laughs> that's why we're here. Right. Um, and that's a very kind of surface behavioral um, answer. But yeah, that kind of gets it in, gets them in the door. And then we can look at what's going on on that deeper level. 
Well, and, and then you bring up the consequence of that by knowing ourselves better. We not only are able to achieve a behavioral change, but we're able to achieve a kind of mastery of our thoughts and our emotions that we didn't previously have, uh, which is that's the kind of work I really love with clients is really taking a look at what thoughts and what emotions and, and how they're moving us. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's, you know, a huge chunk of obsessive compulsive, <laughs> a huge chunk of the obsessive compulsive work is what are the thoughts I'm having and how do I, um, how do I react to those thoughts? So, but it's interesting that in the tradition of the church and her spirituality, uh, especially I think the spirituality of the Desert Fathers, there is a tremendous foundation for the spiritual life, which, which is self-knowledge. In order to know what, what sins you're tempted to, you have to know your thoughts and you have to, and that's part of the power of, of in, in the monastic tradition, that's the power of being in your cell. By being in your room all alone, which I guess now that I think of it, that's precisely what our Lord advises us to do in order to pray, you know, go to your room in secret, right? Um, but when you're alone in your cell, you are left with nothing but your thoughts and your emotions. Yeah. You have no other distractions. So hopefully everyone who's watching this during this glorious season of Lent have quieted their lives a little bit um, and are now experiencing that. You know, so all of a sudden I have to notice the fact that my imagination tends in this direction or my memory or my emotions tend in this direction when I don't distract them. So yeah. that self-knowledge is the beginning of an absolute essential element of spiritual <laughs> life. Yeah. To knowing God. Yeah. And that, that's so critical. And I've been very, very slowly reading through Cardinal Sarah's um, silence, uh, right? I think it's called the power of silence and the dictatorship of noise. Um, but that, you know, that example of being in solitude to reflect on yourself is really kind of non-existent in modern man, right? And it, I'd say it's it's kind of frowned upon. I mean, I, I even struggle with it to, to kind of make space in my day, right, to just leave time for silence because at least my brain goes to what what's going to be productive, what can I get done? right? I'm um, in the midst of working. And so, you know, we could probably debate on where that comes from, but there is something kind of built into modern man, at least, that is really pushing hard against that, that silence, um, or that, that self-reflection. So and that kind of makes sense that when someone comes into therapy, it's because of the behavioral. It's not because they've had time to reflect on it. It's because, well, this keeps coming up. I don't know what's coming up. And they haven't reflected on it. And they haven't really looked at it too much, usually. you know. Well, I'm reminded that in grad school, and I think it's, I think it's even in the introduction to the DSM-5, now that I think about it, something to the effect that therapy is for those whose behaviors or thoughts or emotions or, or whatever category of human activity <laughs> um, have begun to 
impede their their daily functioning or their day to day life. Yeah, you know, there is a kind of, um, and and maybe I'm giving this more gravitas than it deserves, but there is a kind of uh, productive or utilitarian sense behind therapy that the reason for it is to fix you so that you could go back to work. You know, that's maybe putting it a little too bluntly, but I, I think there's definitely an element of that in oh, yeah. the approach it. Especially with the insurance behind it, right? I mean, that's... Yeah, right, right, right. Let's see that empirical data that things are getting better so that we don't have to pay for this anymore, right? Um, yes. <laughs> well, and maybe part of that, or, or maybe that analogy in the beginning of comparing therapy to to physical injury um, speaks to that or reinforces that rather as well. This idea that we're here to patch you up so you could go back to your, your function. Yeah. It's, and it, it sounds like you and I are at least acknowledging that another element, if not a, a more important element of therapy is this growth in self-knowledge, mm -hmm. this, this coming to know oneself. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that might be a very specific Catholic lens to it in comparison to other lenses, I guess, of therapy, because, you know, there's also the notion that therapy is counseling, right? Or that we would just sit and listen or give advice, but to point to point to point our clients back to themselves and to explore meaning and value and purpose and God and what is true and what they're called to um, is way different than just advice giving, which a lot of people might think therapy is, right? I'm, I'm here to get advice to fix this, to get out. And it's like, that's, that's not what we're looking to do. <laughs> right. No, I mean, like I say, you could call into a, a talk show and get that, you know? Yeah. And I think, what is it? The average length of sessions for a client is like two to three sessions. Um, wow. I, I heard that in grad school. They said, yeah, the average person will come in and see you two to three times, and that's it. And I think, you know, maybe that's the insurance, maybe that's the, <laughs> the more in public health situations, but there is a level of you know, therapy versus counseling and or other types of therapy, I think, requires a radical honesty with self and an accountability that sometimes in therapy, you're talking with somebody and then you hit that wall and they're like, oh, I have to do this. Oh, I have to, I have to change this. Um, and then you, sometimes you see them walk away um, or, you know, they're, they're not interested anymore. Sure. And, and, that's all fine and good so long as they're aware of the choice they're making. That's that's something I insist on with clients. You know, you you to borrow Jordan Peterson's language, you don't have to go slay the dragon, but I want you to know there's one there. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's good to be aware that at least there's a dragon in the house. Um, yes. Yeah. So it's it's interesting though that you know perhaps it is a a, um, a Catholic lens to psychotherapy that. The, maybe the primary goal of therapy or, or an essential element of therapy is self-knowledge and that by coming to self-knowledge we then come to the ability to solve all manner of things. So 
drawing this back to uh, destigmatizing therapy and the yeah. de- um, and, and men in particular, for whom I think the destigmatization of therapy needs to take place uh, more intensely, perhaps. Um, I wonder if casting therapy more in the mold of uh, something more akin to spiritual direction mm-hmm. than something like life advice, yeah. because there's that ever-present stereotype, you know, the the that Tim Allen likes to play on, you know, that men don't take directions, you know, we're, we're going to drive until we're lost and not myself unlost, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, and, and there's a, there's a wild element of truth to that, I think. Uh, so I wonder if part of, or looking at therapy more as a means to, well, I don't even know fully how to do that. So, but it, but it occurs to me that maybe, Casting spiritual or, or casting therapy more in the mold of spiritual direction mm-hmm. as as a pro, as a product for people as a service for people yeah. would be the right way to begin to destigmatize therapy yeah. rather rather than pointing out that you're sick and you need help. So mm-hmm. I don't yeah. know. No, true. Yeah, because I think spiritual direction. I know you have a podcast on it um, that people could check out. I think it has more of a element of walking with somebody um, or, or at least the assumption is, you know, they're going to walk with me, um, mm. my spiritual life, um, which is comforting and is helpful. Um, whereas as therapy, I think the assumption is, is different. There's a lot of things that go on in people's mind and it might be scared. <laughs> it might, you know, might be weird, right? It, the initial thing is like, what? But this idea of, you know, walking in the faith, growing in the faith, it's like, well, that that might be helpful. Um, so, yeah, I don't know how we would how we would change that perception. I don't know if you have any ideas on that, but I, I do like that, at least the. Well, yeah, it's definitely well, that notion of walking with um, summons to mind C.S. Lewis's image for friendship, you know, to two people shoulder to shoulder advancing towards a common goal that uh, that friendship is is an essential part well i think for a lot of men having a friend that they can confide in and work stuff through with is is of more value than going to someone for direction or advice or or instruction um but you also it's interesting you you speak to that element also that therapy does tend to be a place where people or or strives to be a place where people <laughs> feel safe enough to bring up um the absurd the bizarre the weird the unmentionable um in a context with a friend and and so that's why therapy is governed i think by certain pretty strict rules of confidentiality, of um, uh, dual relationships where we govern how we interact with these people. Nevertheless, I think for the therapist and for the client, there does have to be some elements of friendship there. If if your project is going to be self-knowledge, I, the therapist, have to kind of like the person who's getting <laughs> to know himself I have to kind of want what's good for that guy in front of me, you know, if I'm going to help him know yeah. himself, <laughs> you know, if, I, if I'm going to help him conquer a problem, I have to at least 
have some affinity for him, some preference for his good over yeah. my own, you know? Absolutely. And that's where, you know, Carl Rogers and that unconditional positive regard probably has a good role in it that it's reminding the therapist of the humanity of the person, um, which, you know, sometimes this therapist, we might not like everything that this person in front of us is doing, but we still have to, you know, be present. And, and, you know, there's a lot of, um, approaches that would say that we can use that in the room too, right? That, you know, we, we have this relationship, this rapport with this person. And when something comes up that is frustrating or kind of off-putting that, that's usually worth bringing up, right? If, if the therapist is experiencing something, other people probably are too. And maybe this person even has an idea of like, yeah, this is kind of affecting my life or, you know, so yeah. But yeah, we, we do, it helps when we like our clients. <laughs> well, and it's, it's interesting, you know, <laughs> given what you just said, maybe the word like is, is too weak of a word, but, uh, you know, that classic sense of love, of desiring what is good for a person. Yeah. I mean, when sometimes that includes telling them that they're really annoying or off-putting or or yeah. or gut-wrenching or, or what have you, letting them in a prudential way know how how they make you react, how they make you feel, how they what they elicit inside of you. I, there is a, a very important place for that, and I think everyone has even experienced that in friendships before. You know, the some of my best friends are people who, who you know, knocked me down and told me off, and then I realized he was right. So this was a good thing for me, and and I think everyone has some experience like that at at some point in their life. So sure, part of therapy, part of growing in self knowledge, is knowing that you tick people off or. You're you really you whine a lot, or you're infuriating, or or what have you. You know, all all I'm rem I'm remembering things people have told me about myself. So yeah, there you, there you go. You know, um, yeah. yeah. No, that's one of the interesting things in monastic life when I was in the monastery was that you know the the amount of time you're allowed to talk is strictly governed in a monastery, and and thank God. Um, but there were certainly plenty. Well, actually, interestingly, I guess it was in a way, kind of instituted in religious life, because there is this thing called chapter of faults once a week where you classically, the monastery I was in didn't do this precisely, but classically you would kneel down in front of all your confreres. Um, there was a, a penitential prayer, you would say, and then your confreres would list the ways in which you've screwed up the rule in the last week. You, you didn't live the life the way you were supposed to. And, and that's an interesting thing because you have to simultaneously love the person enough to let them know how they could be better and, and not let any motivation of malice creep in there, which is easy to do sometimes, um, or, or maybe disgust is a more frequent reaction for some people. But um, yeah, it's an interesting thing when we can make as a concrete part of our relationships this this corrective uh, element or this observational element that you know you really upset me or you did something wrong here yeah. you know that can be very fruitful yeah and I like the you know that you distinguish between 
liking and, and loving because yeah, if we just liked our clients, we could just not really address these things as they come up or, you know, kind of keep that status quo. It's like, like well, you know, I don't want to rock the boat, you know, cause they seem, they seem good, but, but you know, that there's yeah, they seem good and the money's coming in. So why would I upset them? Right. You know, and, and that's a bad approach. Yeah. And unfortunately I think therapists can take that approach. It's like, well, you know, we're just going to solve the problem that you see and then we're done. Right. And it's like, okay, well, stays on the surface but to to love somebody in in the general sense of you know loving uh your your brother or sister it is to be able to call them out and that accountability that honesty piece is really important in therapy to say so i'm kind of noticing this pattern (laughs) or like i kind of notice you say this and you do this what's going on and that can be that can be hard for for I think both therapist and client, but especially for the client in those moments, it's like, whoa, why would you say that? <laughs> right. And right. So, and that's why there does need to be an established habit or, or awareness of the, the therapist, the, the therapist love for their client before you yeah. can really break into that for sure. And it, yeah. also all, all manner of things from the client's attachment history could complicate that as well um yeah but, you know that that might be getting into the weeds a little bit uh and it's interesting you know just as a general observation it's it's just worth recasting i think therapy as a, as a way to know yourself as opposed to a way to <coughs> fix something that's wrong yeah and especially when culturally we're in the habit of ignoring what's wrong, you know, in the case of emotions and thoughts. So, or, you know, yeah. we, we can rest comfortably. I, I know a lot of people with, with pornography addictions do this. They kind of rest comfortably in the fact that my thoughts and emotions aren't apparent to everyone around me. So they persist in, in their, in their behavior or it's tempting to persist in their behavior. So, yeah, you know, I, I think that begins to push this question of destigmatization to to a more interesting place than just, you know, well, you go to a, a doctor for a cold. Why don't you go to a doctor for your depression? Well, you know, again, I've never been to a doctor for my cold, so I, I really don't know why I would do that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> no, and I think there's also part of that might be acknowledging that it is a process and that it's not an instant fix. And I would say even with our our physical, tangible, you know, ailments, it's usually not an instant fix, right? I mean, you don't instantly get over a cold when you go to a doctor, right? You take medication, you you rest, you, you do things necessary to feel better. Um, or, you know, a broken bone. They don't just zap you and your bone is perfectly fine. Your arm is totally good. You have to let it heal maybe you have to do surgery and you have to actually like retrain those muscles so i I don't know i think it 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 might even be more along the lines of this quick fix idea of like what's productive and what's you know and, and i remind all my clients of that coming in i say this isn't a quick fix this is a relationship right it's like if you were to go to coffee with a friend and they were going through a hard time, what would you do, right? You'd listen to them, maybe you'd ask them questions, maybe you would give some advice. 
but how often do we do that with ourselves right because relationships aren't just like oh best friends right it, it takes that time it takes that listening um and it's it's it is a giving of yourself and so to be able to do that for yourself with yourself some people just immediately they write it off it's like that maybe they haven't even considered that notion ever in their life that's probably a lot of people or they just write it off as like i don't need to do that yeah you know i have some kind of baseline level of functioning and you know if if what would knowing myself better yeah. what would really accomplish in my life you know and and you know it's a, it's an interesting thing it really is the road of of the philosopher you know first get to know yourself and then once you've done that, you really do lay the foundation to to have a relationship with the divine. Um, you know, one I I know we're getting close here, but anecdotally, um, it's always fascinated me that in Augustine's uh, De Trinitate, even on an intellectual level, so so not even talking about a relationship with God, just talking about knowing what he is, you know, as, as though he were a specimen of some kind, just being able to understand this whole Trinity thing, you have to understand the internal senses, the internal powers of man, because that's the analogy, you know, the analogy is God the Father is like the will, God the Son is the intellect or the logos, and, and the Holy Spirit, um, well, I, I never did finish the book, so I can't recall. But, uh, <laughs> like, I, only the, I only read the first two chapters, so yeah. Me. But e even on an intellectual level, to know God, you first have to know the human being, and I think I think that translates almost immediately into the into one's individual spiritual life. To know God's love for me, I have to first know what I am. Mm -hmm. I have to know that I'm this this thinking, feeling thing that thinks and feels weird things and, and good things and, and sinful things and, and bizarre things. And, 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 but God nevertheless desires all of creation to say nothing of all of salvation for me. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, it's just, if you don't know yourself, you're never going to be able to launch into that broader project of having a relationship with God. Yeah. And it might be worth a whole nother video to explore that you know our hyper productive society makes it hard for us to go there and also as catholics i think we can we can feel selfish if oh i'm not supposed to look at myself too much right so, like i have to deny myself it's like okay what does that actually mean because ignoring how you're thinking and feeling and just acting not knowing who you are or what you're doing is not denying yourself right it's probably denying other people if you don't take the time to, you know, intentionally act and, and reflect, but, um, yeah, maybe that, maybe that's a whole nother video. <laughs> a, well, why, yeah, why, de definitely why? the productive meditation is, is because I, I was actually thinking about this yesterday in the context of Ash Wednesday. I know this video will go out a little later, but, um, it's interesting that, well, and, and, I, I risk doing damage to the thought by, by talking about it very briefly. But I think it's very interesting that we have this, um, it seems to me, pop culture 
element of being Catholic where one day of the year I have to show up with ash on my face. And, and, and it's some, you know, why am I going to work that day anyways, other than, you know, I kind of have to. You know, culturally, that would have been a day off, probably, I would wager, in the Middle Ages, more or less, or or at least a day given to, to participation in other services. Um, so I, I just wonder, it, it seems to me this weird, it seems to me indicative of this odd relationships that we American Catholics have towards our culture in general. You know, I'm going to be Catholic, but I'm going to be just as hardworking as all the other Protestants in town, you know, and and that's probably painting with too broad of a brushstroke or some such, but I don't know. It, that was what, as I walked off to work and ran across people with lots of ashes on their face I'd never met before, that was part of what I was thinking yesterday, so. Yeah, and even I was reminded of if you're fasting and if you have a job where you're running around and you are, you know, just... I don't know, you're very busy or just there's a lot of physical labor, you can't do as much. Like, you literally can't. You have to slow down, right? Well, and that's a part physical built-in. Yeah. Part of the point is to yeah. slow down. Yes. <laughs> but, but we've kind of taken it, and, and, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of people that don't fast, but, you know, we've kind of taken it just, oh, we'll just fast and just continue on as normal, right? Make sure you get those ashes in and just, you know, and that's the start of Lent. But... You know, so and that makes it hard, right? Because we need food if we're going to be doing more, and if we need to, you know, we do need to slow down. That's a good reminder. So, yeah, maybe sometimes we totally miss the point on that one. <laughs> yeah, I wonder. But again, another podcast, so or another episode. <laughs> yeah, good, good stuff. All right. Um, let that be sufficient for the day. Leave a comment below. Give us a like. Subscribe. Go over to the podcast. Uh, give a review. Uh, throw us some questions so that we're not making up stuff here at the end of the episode. And um, God bless. Yeah. Thanks for watching. God bless.